you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I am podcast producer Megan Lubin. Megan, always a pleasure. How's it going? I have my ears filled with the sound of summer jams, so I'm doing great. Well, that is perfect. I know that we recently kicked off our making of a summer hit series with the episode on BTS's Butter. Right. I've been listening to Olivia Rodrigo's album, Sour, Mm. and I think we need to talk about her third single off that album, Good For You. Have you guys gotten a chance to listen to it yet? Yeah, I mean, a thousand times. The record has been on repeat. Every time I get in my car and turn on the radio, it seems to be playing. Yep, sure. If you ever jump on TikTok, I don't know how often you guys TikTok, but that's another very common place you might hear that song. TikTok is currently my social media restriction at this very moment. Okay. As in you're not on TikTok? I usually am, but I've just needed a break. Yeah. So I've kind of missed the, the phenomenon. Okay. Well, um, TikTok aside, I know you've both heard it a bajillion times. I want to cue it up and listen to a little bit of it. Yes, please. I think one of my favorite things about this track is that it's almost like it has a split personality between the verse and the chorus. The verse is kind of funky, kind of slow, mm. kind of sinister. And then the chorus just explodes into this distorted, raging pop punk anthem. like head spinning totally and put a pin in that Nate because we're going to come back to that split personality but yeah I mean to me this is just a defiantly upbeat summer jam and before we go deep on the song I want to give people a quick refresher on Olivia Rodrigo Olivia is the 18 year old former Disney star who took the pop world completely by storm with her first single driver's license which we've talked about on the show Bringing back the power ballad. Good For You is her second number one debut, which means it arrived on the billboard in the top position. She's one of a very small handful of artists to ever achieve that feat. So with Olivia fresh on people's minds, I want to get back to what we're hearing in the song. Nate, you mentioned that split personality verse that starts with that creeping bass line. Let's have a listen to that. I love the way they start this song because it's this kind of low, sparse, funky bass line. And it really doesn't tell you where this song is headed. It really sets you up for it to be kind of this funky slow jam. And that's part of it, but it's not the whole story. Yeah. 
I had that same reaction. I, I don't know where it's going to go, but I do know that something is about to happen. And then right after that baseline, you get Olivia. She's immediately confrontational. Right, her first line, well, good for you. I guess you moved on really easily. So something bad has happened, presumably a breakup. Beyond that, she's also escalating the sort of rhythmic energy in the song. That bass is so simple. It's such a good, just two-note little hook. But now she's going... Right? You could almost have a drummer doing that. All of a sudden, things that felt slow are now building intention, not just in what she's singing about, but the way that she's upping the ante in her rhythm. Totally. Then we hear a kind of unexpected sound, something that I didn't catch on my first few listens of the song. Remember when you said that you wanted to give me the world? Did you hear it? Just like a little... It sounds like an electronic shaker going... Or hi-hat. I'm not sure what the instrumentation is here. It sounds to my ear like almost like a pressure release valve. (laughs) <laughs> like, as if if this song were a room, you'd get, like, steam coming out of little <laughs> valves. That's a fun read. Right? <laughs> I think I I read it like that because as you're listening to the song, pressure is building, aided by her vocal delivery, aided mm. by that bass line. To me, it's kind of foreshadowing a much more substantial release. It's like you said, Nate, you've got that one more low-key personality in the verse and then this huge release in the chorus. Mm. It's transformative, you know? It's like I I hear the verse as kind of the sarcastic side of this of this breakup, like good for you, but really I, not like I'm <laughs> I'm really pissed. But then in the chorus there's like Something almost cathartic. Pressure valve fully let out. Yeah, pressure valve fully let out. Mm. It's liberating musically, but lyrically too, Nate, like you said. She spent the verse directing her energy at the repercussions of this for her ex. And then you get this euphoric chorus that addresses her experience of the breakup. She says, I've lost Mm. my mind. I've spent the night crying on the bathroom floor. And in that way, I mean, it's a therapeutic release almost. To me, this song altogether, and in particular the chorus, reflect a very, very private moment that she's effectively spray painting all over the walls. Mm-hmm. You know, there are moments in the song where I'm listening to lyrics and I'm essentially hearing my own words that I've written in my high school journal about boys who made me mad. Like, it's that singular anguish of teenage heartbreak. <laughs> There's actually a moment when her voice catches on her own anger in the second verse as if she's working so hard to control it and she can't. And good for you, it's like you never even met me. Remember when you swore to God I was the only person who Oh my God. Megan, this moment, this is like my favorite moment in the whole song. I've I've listened to that little way she delivers that word good for you in that second verse probably a hundred times, and I can't decide whether she's laughing or like choking on it. Or even like sneering. Or, or yeah, or if she's like, like I can't believe you, you just you piece of shit. Or if she's like, 
I physically can't bear to even think about you. The, it's it's but it's there's something that is j- just like seared into my brain about the way she delivers that single word that makes this whole song for me. Yeah, or like maniacally plotting. Ooh, that's that's yet another interpretation <laughs> uh, which I am very down with. Now that we've gotten a decent feel for the song, I'm curious what does it remind you of? I think there's so many different references you can point to for some there might be the return of a certain pop punk quality i do hear some mid-2000s alt rock in that bass line you know it's funny because uh maybe a few months ago we talked about willow smith on the podcast and that i feel like with her song transparent soul she's reaching back to a similar era as olivia rodrigo is here With both of these artists, I hear the band Paramore as like a, a touchstone. And it makes me think that like Gen Z is has been digging into the Paramore back catalog. Do you think, am I hearing that correctly, Megan? Uh, Nate, yeah. So <laughs> the song that Good For You gets compared to a lot these days is Paramore's Misery Business. quick reactions there's something about the way that it's like so distorted and heavy and the drummer is just pounding and it but then at the same time it has like this beautiful melody that like you could take this melody and put it in like a Rossini aria it is so gorgeous and it's like the combination of those two things just makes this track hit so hard yes and People have heard Misery Business and Good For You so much that there are actually a bunch of seamlessly mixed mashups popping up all over TikTok and YouTube. I want to listen to one. Wait, this is (laughs) melting my brain. That's a great mashup. It's a really good mashup. Oh my goddess, that is so fun to listen to. There's some immediate musical connections which are pretty obvious, and they're easy to mash up because they're just one key apart. Like, oh, Chuck's getting out the old guitar. So good for using A. Misery business is an A flat. So they're really close. You can just slow one hmm. down or speed one up or you know pitch shift them, and they they sound pretty natural. They both have that same four, one, five, six chord progression. Mm. The it's probably one of the most common chord progressions of the last 20 years. You can hear the same exact thing in Lady Gaga's Alejandro. <laughs> The Chainsmokers Don't Let Me Down. Taylor Swift loves this progression. We hear it in Bad Blood. We hear it in her collaboration with Zayn in the song I Don't Want to Live Forever. Which is to say, 
when we listen to the Paramore and we listen to the Olivia Rodrigo, cool that they share these sort of common building blocks, but they really are just common building blocks. The sound-alike conversation is not that interesting to me. Like you said, I mean, both of these songs are built using some of the very fundamental building blocks of pop. What is interesting to me, though, is the fact that both Olivia and Haley Williams, the lead singer of Paramore, felt free enough to bring that raw, unguarded rage to the mic. Um, they're both mm-hmm. singing really emotionally and transparently about heartbreak, about mm-hmm. wrongs they've suffered at the hands of a romantic partner. I wanted to know more about who and what made that expression possible. Like, who helped normalize, or dare I say, popularize women's anger on the mic so that Olivia Rodrigo could put out a song like Good For You and be so universally celebrated for it? And while we're at it, I kind of want to figure out if this pop punk lineage that everyone seems to be placing her in is really the core of her sound, like is really her primary reference. Will you guys join me on a bit of a journey to dig into that? Always. I'm so down. Excellent. All right. So first up, I want to dig in to the roots of that angry, confessional, diaristic testimony, as Rolling Stone has called it, like coming out of a diary, that signature emo style of Haley Williams and other pop punk lead singers that Olivia is supposedly paying homage to with this song and with this album. But to understand emo and this genre of music that these folks are pulling from, I think we need to understand a little bit about the genesis of punk rock, which is sort of the larger family that emo stems from. I'm pretty excited that you're doing this investigation because, to be honest, it's an area of my listening which could use some edification. Yeah, ditto. Take us to school, Megan. All right. So punk starts out in the late 70s. It's fast. It's sparse. I read this line. It's three chords. It's political. And it's aggressively anti-establishment. Yeah, that sounds right. I am an anti-Christ. It's the Sex Pistols. It's the Buzzcocks. It's the Clash. Post-industrial British dudes is what I'm guessing. There are actually a handful of all-women bands that find decent success in this early scene. You've got The Slits, The Patti Smith Group, Polystyrene, and X-Ray Specs. The rock historian Helen Reddington says that it was punk music that allowed many aspiring female musicians to see themselves in the pages of the rock press for the very first time. And then in the 1980s, punk takes a major turn towards the hardcore. That was Minor Threat with Straight Edge. And in the process of punk turning towards the hardcore, as bands like Minor Threat start getting more and more popular, punk gets less and less hospitable for women. Hmm. It was just getting really macho. That is Jessica Hopper. She is a writer, music critic, and at this point, kind of a de facto punk historian. And friend of the podcast. And friend of the pod. Jessica. Jessica told me that this harsher, more violent shade of punk was alienating a lot of people, not just women. But she does credit one woman 
a guitarist named Sharon Cheslow with sort of pausing this shift to hardcore punk. In the mid-80s, after her own band dissolved, Sharon goes to her good friend Ian Mackay, an indie label head and sort of the nucleus of the DC punk scene. And says to him, kind of complaining, you know, you're, you're this powerful dude in the hardcore scene. And that scene, she says, has gotten way too male and way too violent. Skinheads are regularly showing up at hardcore shows, and slam dancing and mosh pits are more likely to lead to serious injury than not. So Ian reflects and begins taking steps towards what would become 1985's Revolution Summer, a full-on ground-up rebellion against the edge that had taken over punk rock. And it's that summer, 1985's Revolution Summer, that gives us Rites of Spring. Rites of Spring was, is, by most people's accounting, you know, the first emo band, first American emo band. They are immediately so hugely influential. You know, the music is different. It's more textural. Guy Pachetto's vocals are very emotional. What do I They're very dynamic. And up to that point, you know, hardcore was like, rah, 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 rah. And he's like, you know, famously kind of mewling. It's not political slogans. It's not rock against Reagan. It is, it's something deep and it sounds very visceral. Yeah, we've moved far beyond the Reagan, Thatcher, political frustration into an internal frustration. Hmm. Exactly. With emo, punk gets really personal. There's another great Rolling Stone quote. They summed up emo as minor chords, dramatic pauses, and vocals that sounded terminally on the verge of tears. <laughs> so with emo, this style, this emotional lyricism really starts to take off. There was this point where it felt like emo was being codified as being about breakups and that there was a novelty at that time for some hearing young men be really emotional, you know, almost sounding like they were crying, maybe even actually crying. And according to Jessica, it becomes a subconscious game of one-upsmanship. In some ways, it felt like to me, like, who could up the ante? Where it was like the more over the top, the more expressive, the more nakedly candidly like losing your shit like i'm so heartbroken i'm gonna like fling myself into the mic fling myself on the floor like just the melodrama of it it was both masculine you know screaming angry i have the mic i have the voice i have the floor this is my story you know then the other part of this is like an, a, a sort of emotional outpouring that we just typically see as like unhinged and feminine in nature, crying, singing songs about crying. What I'm hearing is Jessica describing this like macho competition of who can be more vulnerable. Yeah, like who can be the biggest sad boy? <laughs> it's me. So with emo, punk gets personal and, and out of rites of spring, 
we get a whole slew of emo bands kind of mimicking and following in the footsteps of this much more melodic, vulnerable branch of punk rock. And by the time bands like Dashboard Confessional and Fall Out Boy hit the scene in the late 90s, you may have heard of them. The days of railing about wanting to be an anarchist are largely stuck in the rearview. Emo, as it evolved from the counterculture politics of early punk and the kind of verbal self-immolation of hardcore to the inner turmoil of heartbreak, of romance gone awry, essentially. Funny because because the era of the rise of emo in the late 90s and early 2000s was probably really ripe for some more political reimagination. <laughs> right? You know, at this point, I feel like I've heard some of the musical influences going into bands like Paramore some of the musical, some of the lyrical influences, but where are the women in this scene? Like we, we, there was maybe this brief moment in the 70s where they were poised to burst in and they were kind of shut out. Like has, is emo as uninviting as punk was before it? Yes, and that's actually what brought me to Jessica in the first place. In 2003, after almost two decades of watching the emo scene get on its feet, flourish, and eventually reach mainstream popularity, Jessica wrote an essay about this. It's called Emo, Where the Girls Aren't. And in it, she describes her experience of being at these early emo shows, her experience of watching women, like other fans, watching the men shredding their hearts out on stage and wondering where they belonged in all this. I thought about what did it mean for these young women to so often be in the audience and so rarely on stage? And then the other part was, as emo was becoming sort of codified as a boy with his broken heart, it became prescriptive. The narrative was always the boys. The narrative was always girls were bad. They never had names. (laughs) They never had any detail about them other than who they were to the boy singing the song. So I, I asked Jessica when that changed. But it turns out that writing that essay was Jessica's emo swan song. She left the scene entirely right after writing it, Hmm. just fed up and kind of unable to stay in a creative space that was so where women didn't didn't have a place, weren't on stage, weren't centered in the music. Makes sense. I did more research after we spoke. And it is really hard to find women musicians in this genre. Like Haley Williams, even to this day, is a little bit of an anomaly. And that's not to say there are no women emo musicians. In fact, there are a bunch. They just aren't as likely to have gained mainstream or even success within the genre. And it makes sense. Like the whole genre, as Jessica tells it, was built on performative male emotion. Hmm. So I think this history of emo, as Jessica tells it, it tackles a piece of good for you. It gives us context for the current claims that the song is emo or helping to anchor an emo revival, which I would now argue is misleading. As for the women who made a song like Good For You possible, we'll come back to that after we take a quick break. You're at a place you just discovered. 
And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Megan, I feel like from the first half of our conversation, I'm learning a lot about the history of how pop punk becomes this exclusive space. But I'm feeling a little like, are we boxing ourselves in here? Are we being too narrow in the genre connections that we're trying to make? That's a little bit the feeling that I was left with after my conversation with Jessica. I found that history of emo really helpful, but it definitely doesn't tell the whole story. The reality is women have been raging on the mic for a very long time, like since the earliest days of recorded music. And I think it's fair to say that these artists have more to do with the celebration of Good For You that we're seeing right now than any Fall Out Boy song. Hmm. Hmm. We'd be sitting here all day if I tried to put together a totally exhaustive list of angry <laughs> women on the mic. But here is a short list of examples. We've got Bessie Smith, Empress of the Blues, railing about her partner leaving her in The Devil's Gonna Get You. You go away. She almost snarls when she says doggone. I love that. It's it's a growl. It's so raw. It's amazing. And what a threat. Like, not I'm going to leave you. The devil's going to get you. Mm. And how about the great Nina Simone with Break Down and Let It All Out? More recently, in the 1990s, you have Alanis Morissette bringing us one of the most well-known rage anthems of all time. You ought to know. I want you to know that I'm happy for you. I wish nothing but the best for you both. Okay, I also have never in my life connected Nina Simone to Alanis Morissette, but the way that they use vibrato and and vocal control to express anger is amazing. Oh, that is such a good point. We've got Miranda Lambert with Mama's Broken Heart. I cut my bangs with some rusty kitchen scissors. And then, of course, we have the classic Carrie Underwood, Before He Cheats. Before He Cheats. She uses that vocal growl in a similar way to Bessie Smith. Yeah, it's like we came full circle back to 1928 across time, across genre. That's it's that continuum of of women raging on the mic that you that you're drawing out for us here. It's really stunning to hear. And 
you guys might notice I'm creeping in a sort of countryish direction here because that's where Jessica and I had a bit of a light bulb moment. I read her the line in Good For You where Olivia says, I guess that therapist I found for you, she really helped. Now you can be a better man for your brand new girl. On yourself, I guess the therapist I found for you, she really helped. Now you can be a better man for your brand new girl. To me, lyrically, that is, that's countryer than, <laughs> than it is anything. Yeah, that's, that's straight Nashville. Yeah, Jessica hears Olivia's confrontational callout of her problematic ex in country music, and in particular in country music's most prolific crossover artists, like Think Leanne Rhymes, Carrie Underwood, Miranda Lambert, and of course, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. I remember when we broke up the first time, saying this is it, I've had enough, because like we hadn't seen each other in a month when you said you needed space. What? Same chord progression is good for you. <laughs> no way. Nice. The bass line even has a sort of punkish kind of groove to it. Or what about those oohs bringing us into the chorus? That's like straight out of Paramore, straight out of good for you. Wow, the, yeah. the overlap here is surprising, but I'm into it. Totally. And Taylor Swift is an oft-cited influence of Olivia Rodrigo's. In fact, Taylor has a writing credit on Sour, and <laughs> much has been made of their online interactions with Taylor kind of giving Olivia little boosts here and there on her Instagram page. It it might be hard to hear in a track like, we are never, ever getting back together. But the fact is that Taylor, Miranda, Carrie, and by extension, Olivia, are all standing on this long lineage of female artists who at times risked popularity and sales to sing openly about their experiences of disloyal men and domestic hardship. I love this voyage that you and Jessica have taken us on because it makes me hear good for you in yet another light. Like we already unpacked all these different layers to it. And here's yet another one. Like what, what laid the groundwork for Olivia Rodrigo to sing and express yourself this way in the first place and the answer to answer that you need to go way back and then bring it all the way forwards every time i hear the song in my car now i'm going to be thinking about that too and not to get to what's the word where you reduce everything down to something that's like more simple than it is reductive reductive <laughs> and not to get too reductive here but but that nate is pop right on so many of these episodes we're breaking down pop songs, trying to get to the root of certain influences. And what we inevitably find in a lot of these songs, like whether it's Lil Nas X's Montero um, or The Weeknd's Blinding Lights, is that they are amalgamations of a lot of different sounds. They're drawing influences from a bunch of different places. And this was something that Jessica went really out of her way to emphasize, that female pop artists who are topping the charts right now are doing just that. They are not the next wave of punk or the next wave of emo. They are doing more innovative things with genre than we ever could have imagined. The last decade, and in particular the last half decade, what a woman in pop, what a young woman in pop can be and do is so much more dynamic and is constantly being redesigned. It's building on girls that came up on Taylor or girls that were like 
you know, pop music didn't appeal to them till they heard Sky Ferreira and like how moody that was or Lord or Fiona, all these things that have just made greater space for women in pop to be more fully human, more fully themselves and more resonant. And so people just need to stop trying to draw it back to something that a man did before and realize that teenage women have completely remade the landscape of top 40 pop in the last 15 years. So in sum, Olivia Rodrigo's Good For You. Great song. Rad song. Not radical, <laughs> but connected to a long lineage of radical women who made history before her. If you liked this episode of Switched on Pop, check out this week's episode of The Cut as they discuss Olivia Rodrigo and why grown-up millennials just can't get enough of teenage angst. That'll be out tomorrow. Switched on Pop is produced by Megan Lubin, Nate Sloan, and Charlie Harding. We're engineered by Brandon McFarlane, edited by Jolie Myers, illustrations by Iris Gottlieb, social media by Abby Barr. Our executive producers are Nishat Karwa and Hannah Rosen. We're a member of the Vox Media Podcast Network and a production of Vulture. You can find Jessica Hopper's essay, Emo, Where the Girls Aren't, in a collection out now called The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic. That book actually came out in 2015, but there's a revised and expanded second edition that just came out. It's awesome. I just picked mine up at my local bookstore. Find it anywhere that you buy books. Big thanks to JBL for supplying us with the gear we need to record our show from the road as we visit friends and family this summer. And you can find a next episode waiting for you early this week on Friday. It's going to be really fun. It's a conversation with one of our favorite writers and podcasters, Hanif Abdurraqib, about Lord's new single, Solar Power. You can find that episode anywhere you get podcasts, including the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or www.switchedonpop.com. And on social media, at Switched on Pop. We'll see you on Friday. And until then, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.